Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. You guys are diehards. The weather is no good today. So thank y'all all for coming. Um, I'm gonna put this up there for my own purposes. Uh, as we continue um, talking about Daniel, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can look in Daniel. This is where it gets weird uh, today in the dreams. But I'm reminding us that our focus is on our own life with God, the sense of personal devotion and what that means um, out of us into this way in which we live in the world. And today I wanna talk about this idea of, of the reward of wisdom. And I wanna sort of put that phrase in your mind because a lot of us would, would value that wisdom is a good thing, an important thing, uh, something that should be pursued. Um, but we have this idea that if we are wise or act wisely, there will be some repercussions, some benefit. And so I wanna explore um, what that looks like. The reason I wanna make sure that we have this front and center is because our, the mission of our church is to reach people and help them walk with God in such a way that we experience life with God, this, this real deep reality of life with God together that moves outward um, to bring something to bear on the world around us. So we have to stay focused. This isn't about commenting or critiquing the culture. It's about learning how we live and experience life with God. So that's where we've been going today. Before um, I jump in, <clears throat> I wanna pause and just take a moment um, just so many things going on in our world, but obviously uh, a week and a half ago, um, a week ago was the, um, the devastating earthquake in Turkey uh, and Syria. And you know, the, the, the counts are coming in, there's over 1.3 million people displaced, so without homes. And the death toll is approaching 30,000 people. It's, it's tragedy that's kind of unimaginable for us. And one of the, the benefits, one of the things in our partnership with Convoy of Hope is um, they leverage local churches in the worst disasters in the most difficult parts of the world. And so they are there and they are leveraging churches to bring supplies and all the things that are needed and ultimately hope um, to these areas. And so one of the first things, we obviously partner with them at a pretty um, good, clip every year, but we do immediately usually take and write them um, a check um, to be financially positioned to respond so that they can then operate and move in the directions uh, that are best suited to serve the people in those areas. So just know that that's part of our strategy, the way we operate uh, in our partnerships is just to be really aggressive and really assertive with helping partners shoulder the burdens in local churches in these communities, local communities, um, where things like this happen. So I just wanna take a moment and pray um, for them and just to remind us of what, um, you know, what happens in the world um, around us. Father, I thank you for the time. Um, we certainly wanna pause and, and just lift up our brothers and sisters uh, in Syria and in Turkey. Um, generations of people lost in an instant. It's staggering for us to consider, to think about. So I ask that you're, we're baffled by the suffering. Um, it's maddening. Uh, it's often so frustrating 
to the world that we long to live in and to the way we think things ought to be. And sometimes we just push those demands on you to do something. And so we confess all that. We ask you to meet us in the hardest of the questions that we wrestle with. Father, in that, may we, our minds be inclined towards you and to pursue the wisdom that comes from you. Father, we certainly want to lift up the rescue workers, the partnerships, the churches, the pastors who are on the front lines um, dealing with the aftermath for provision, for protection, all the things. God, most of all, that somehow in the midst of all this darkness, your hope would break through in some really profound ways. We ask for that. We trust that. We lift all of this to the name of your son, Jesus, who is the king um, of all that we see and know. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, last week, I asked you to consider, and we're going to review a little bit if you weren't here, <clears throat> to consider the, the water that we swim in. I told the bad joke about the fish that nobody got. It wasn't a joke. It was just a story that, anyway. And I ask you to consider the, the water that we swim in. And the question is, how is it that you and I are being formed just because we wake up and go to school or go to work or drive our cars or go to or whatever it is? How are we being shaped by the things that we encounter all the time. And then last uh, Sunday night, our five o'clock, Clay actually taught uh, that, that part of our, our uh, service. And he actually asked the question, he said, what is it that might be causing malformation? Like how have we, how are we inclined in particular directions that are misshapen because of the culture we live in? And, and all of us have to consider this. All of us have to consider how are we, what is happening in my heart, in my life, because of the world in which I have lived in, the things that I have experienced, the things that I can deliberately avoid because of my own sense of, because of my own sense of control or my capacity to control, whatever it might be. What are the, what's shaping me? What's forming me? What's malforming me? And what I'm asking you is to consider this. I, I just don't want to be one more voice of critique in, a, in, a, in, in, the, in our culture. That's just, that's not the point. I want you to consider some things that will ultimately help us align and pursue some things that I think can actually push against and bring the kind of hope and healing that God longs to bring to the world around us. And he uses us to do that. Um, in our world, we have at our fingertips more information than perhaps at any point in human history. I rarely use these presents because there's nothing new under the sun except the iPhone. Like that is new. And it allows us to have massive amounts of information just avalanching on us all the time. Started with right 24 hour news cycle and now it's, it's just by the millisecond. It's just enormous amounts of information. So much information and precious little wisdom. And so how do we find wisdom or gain wisdom and what do we do with it and what is it anyway? Wisdom in the old covenant, in the, in, the, in, the, in the old culture isn't just about, it's not about being a sage and being able to offer good advice. Wisdom had this idea of integration. It was that what you learned and knew was integrated in your life in a way that demonstrated itself in a, 
in a, and with integrity, in a, in a whole way. You are a whole person. That's what wisdom was designed to do. It's designed to take these parts of us that are frayed and integrate them into one unified system and way of living and governing our lives and offering ourselves. It's not just about being a sage and being able to dispense good advice. So part of what's happening, again, I'm just gonna put this on the screen so you can see it. I mentioned this last week, but one of the things that we have long assumed that I'm just, I wanna push against as we consider what forms us or what malforms us is that we have long assumed that because we have, we have, that we've long assumed that we've lived in God's kingdom simply because we've lived in the United States of America. And we just felt like the trajectory of everything in the culture was sort of morally aligned. And so we could just sort of drift along and move. And I think that was a really, really costly mistake. It was a really dangerous assumption. And the reality is, is that it has formed us in some ways and probably protected me, I'll speak for myself, in some ways that were probably super helpful. Um, but it's also done some things that required a lot of undoing in my own life. And so I wanna sort of show you this uh, from the book of, of Daniel. And what you're gonna see here is this super weird dream and what Daniel does to find out what that dream is and what he was living in, the system he was living in. And what you begin to understand is that in order for us, like the whole thing that Daniel begins with is to, to resist the defilement of the world. He doesn't eat the king's food, if you remember from last week. He doesn't eat the king's food. And the word that is used is this idea of defilement. And so <clears throat> I'm gonna put this up there and a lot of us are gonna feel, you're gonna say, oh man, defilement, that's a mean, bad word. What is it that defiles us? And so Daniel lives in this system that is governed. Well, this is a terrible circle. We'll call it this, this sort of world system, right? The system of this world. And that is governed, I believe, by fear. And what happens in this system is that it's governed with a sense of deficiency And it is I before E on this one. I looked it up. That causes us to take. Our, our posture is to take. So we're going to be testing ourselves on this. There's a force in the world that operates out of deficiency. And therefore it takes whatever it can to build worth and value in any system or any individual. That's my premise. So that's the governing force of this world. We use law to sort of ensure that it happens. That's, that's the whole tension uh, in the scriptures. So in Daniel chapter two, what has happened? I'll give you a sort of a real quick assessment. Um, Daniel makes a deal about his diet in chapter one. He says, hey, we don't wanna eat the king's food. Give us vegetables and give us water and test and see if after this amount of time, we're not stronger and healthier. And sure enough, they are stronger and healthier. And what happens when they exercise this? They are elevated, they are promoted. They become the wisest of the wise. They are promoted into positions. That's what happens. Daniel excels and he is promoted. And here's the subtle thing that we have to press on when we think about what the world, the water we swim in. What we end up thinking is that the benefits of obedience and resisting defilement and doing things God's way is that we will be promoted to these positions and have the kind of influence to leverage the law the way God wants the law used. 
That's what we have grown up thinking. And Daniel seems to buttress that. What's the reward that Daniel got for his wisdom? Oh, he got promoted. He's now in charge. He has power. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king who's conquered uh, Jerusalem and pulled Daniel and taken them captive. He's the reason that they're in captivity. He promotes them. They're among the wise men and the sages or the the sorcerers and all the the magicians in, uh, in his cabinet, so to speak. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare and he wants it interpreted. And here's what he does. He calls all of his wise men in. He says, I had a bad dream and I want somebody to interpret it. They go, well, tell us what the dream is and then we'll interpret it for you. And he goes, oh no, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to trick me. Like what? He says, I want you to tell me the dream that I had and then interpret it for me. And they're like, because at least if someone tells you the dream, you can just make something up. But if you have to like tell them what they dreamed, and then interpret it for them. Now the stakes are high. And he says, in fact, he, he's, so, he's so afraid, he's so terrified that they're all plotting against him that he basically says, you're just trying to buy time. And if you don't interpret this, I'm gonna kill all of you. You think you have a bad boss. So a side note, this is how the world operates. Most everything, wherever you have transactional relationships, it doesn't matter where it is. As long as people agree and comply, it's fine. But as as soon as someone deviates, the only way to resolve it is with an ultimatum. Do this or else. Do this or else. it's, 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 It's sort of entrenched with paranoia. We are afraid, we are fearful of this. There's a harshness to it that doesn't really match what's required to be human. And so what I think we need to pay attention to is that what God has invited us into is this other rule or this other realm, which we're gonna call the kingdom of God, that is governed by a completely different force. And so what you're gonna see is that what what God has intended, he has a purpose and he has a, um, a reason and he has an intention for these things, for what he has created. And anytime those things are used for anything other than what they've been intended for, that is the definition of defilement. Defilement is not just the fact that you do something wrong or bad or that you're spoiled or that you're no good. That's not what it is. To defile something means that you take something that was used for one thing and you use it for another. If you hit a nail with a screwdriver, which all of us have done, you defile it. You take it, it's meant for one thing and you use it for something else. That's the image I want you to have in your mind. That's how it's thought about. The reason the food was because God has intended their bodies for one thing so they would not defile themselves by taking something that would malform them, that would cause them to participate in some way that would deviate from what God has intended for them. We have to think about it this way. When God says to be holy as I am holy, he doesn't mean for you to behave. That's a good start. He means for you to make sure that your body and your mind and your hands and your feet and your head and your heart are useful and remain useful and aligned with what he intends for us. Anything other than that 
begins this process or begins to defile. That's how it would be used. So here's what Daniel does. Daniel hears that there's this, um, this thing is happening and now he is in, um, they're gonna kill all the wise men because they can't interpret the dream. So here's where the story picks up today. This is Daniel chapter two, verse 14. So the king's commander's name is Arioch. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon because they can't tell what his dream is, he's just gonna kill them all. Daniel spoke with him with wisdom intact. Now when someone's after you, is your default posture wisdom intact? Or is it like you just match nuttiness with nuttiness? I mean, to just kill everybody because they can't tell much. This is insane. And what most of us, whenever something happens to us or someone says something, we just match their insanity with our own insanity. And Daniel models something here that just isn't normal. Wisdom intact. There's a posture to wisdom. There's something that is un, unshakable or, and not rattled by having a perspective of this. So he continues on. And in verse 17, Daniel returned to the house. So he basically, oh, sorry, let me finish at verse 15. Um, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a heart, uh, harsh decree? And Arach explained the matter to Daniel. Hey man, the king's furious. We can't interpret the dream. He won't even tell us what the dream is. He wants someone to tell him and then interpret it. And so at this, Daniel goes into the king and asks for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And you can just imagine, if you're gonna kill us anyway, might as well take a shot. I might make up something that's just consistent with what he dreamed. I mean, it's, it's the best shot he's got. I don't think that's what Daniel's doing, but that's what I would have done. Just give me one more meal. Daniel 2, 17. Uh, then Daniel returned to his house. So Daniel seems like he's got this wisdom, this tact, his posture. He's like, let me go talk to the king and I'll tell him I'll interpret the dream. So he goes back to his house. I want you to listen to the tone. He goes back to his house and he explains the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that we won't be killed. And we need to pray or else we're gonna die. So that he and his friends might not, might not be executed by the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What did he ask them to plead for? I'll back up one to verse 17. He urged them to plead for what? For mercy. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in this, You'll be able to test and approve this way that we're to live in this particular world. In view of God's mercy, to encounter God as someone who gives and offers to us. So this is the, this is the posture. So <clears throat> Daniel goes on, and this is verse 16, uh, sorry, verse uh, 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. So in the middle of the night, Daniel gets the interpretation. Here's what the dream is. The dream is there's a giant, a giant statue. He's got a gold head, a bronze belly and thighs, and some silver arms. His feet are clay and iron, and there's a rock that God 
This is a crazy dream. There's a rock that is hewn out, not by man, but by someone else in the heavens. And this rock basically comes and crushes to smithereens all of these kingdoms, all this, this statue. And the wind blows, and there's nothing left of it. And then this rock becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. How's that for a dream? So then Daniel comes in and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of kings. And what you'll start to see in Daniel is language that John uses in Revelation. You'll see language that Jesus uses to attach to himself, to begin to introduce us in Daniel while the, the people of God are in captivity, in exile in another land, this way of life in the kingdom. Jesus talks about him being the son of man, which is introduced in Daniel 7. This is all in there. And so here, basically Daniel goes to the king and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of kings. You're the top dog, most powerful man in the world. And this rock is gonna come and smash your head and destroy you. And then after you, there are gonna be these lesser and lesser kingdoms. And the last kingdom is gonna be divided into, it's gonna be crushed and blown away. And there's this rock that's gonna come and this rock has become a mountain. It's gonna fill the whole earth, symbolizing this other rule that's actually gonna fill the whole earth one day. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, thank you very much. And we'll see how this goes later. He actually gets promoted again after this dream. But here's what I want you to understand. The dream isn't about how God is going to intervene and stop the chaos. What Daniel does is he reminds us and he models for us that this cycle of one system replacing another system is going to continue. And there are other interpretations of this. Some people try to figure out, is this kingdom this, is this kingdom that? I think it's bigger than that. But Daniel models that we are to remain faithful and we are not, even though Daniel is promoted, we are not to become political tools in this system that cannot bring the kingdom of God to bear on the world. Did you hear that? We cannot become political pawns in a system that can't. The rock becomes a mountain. The statues are blown away. There's something else happening. This is the invitation of which you and I are invited to live in. Preservation of power, the fear right, of losing it causes us to do terrible things would you agree with that? I mean, in our own sense, in our own world, if someone comes in and they threaten our job or they're better than us, the preservation of our position, the pre I'm not just talking about systems, I'm talking about us. The preservation of me and my way and my accolades and, and my success will cause me to do terrible things. I'll hold on to things. I'll keep other people from having them because they might take something from me. All of this is based on a sense of deficiency and it puts me in a position to take and to hold on to things. So how do we navigate this? Here's what I think is fascinating. One more observation. When we begin to do this, we usually live with a sense that it's, it's just paranoia, it's distrust, and we sort of pull into our tribes. We just find people who think like us and then we offer threats and we take offense to everything. And that becomes the water that you and I swim in. That's the tone. That's how we operate today. That's our version of this. And this idea of, of 
what has happened is influence. This water has leaked into us, creating a mirage of influence that is devoid of responsibility. To, to pursue and to gain a voice in some way as a leader or whatever it is without the responsibility of what has been entrusted or given is sort of the way. And what happens is this moves into, we, we, we confuse influence with attention. And that becomes a cheap substitute for love. Look, people liked me. See all the clicks, see all the accolades, see all the things. And we begin to live for this. And then when that begins to be threatened or taken away or diminish, we do crazier things to ensure that it continues. There is no freedom in this. There is no capacity for us to really be the way that we have been created to be. This is what happens is we are defiled. So here's the end. And then we'll give you our little litmus test for us. Daniel continues on and after God reveals the dream, he's like, here's what God, here's what he said. And I think this is important, this is Daniel's prayer. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes the times and seasons. He deposes of kings, right? He, gets, he just lets them go by the wayside and he raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. God reveals deep and hidden things to us, to you and to me. He knows that what lies in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I think and praise you, God, the God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power. And look what he says. You have made known to me what we asked of you. And you have made known to us the dream of the king. He moves in this collection thing. Wisdom and power come from God. It's not an intellectual exercise. It begins with a posture before the Lord. Lord, wisdom and power belong to you. Would you grant me some of this? Would you grant this to me? That's how it's... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what the wisest man in the world said, Solomon, King Solomon. The, the fear of the Lord begins with a posture. I mean, the, the wisdom begins with a posture before God to say this, we recognize this comes from you. You and I get a choice as to how we're going to use the information we have. We get a choice as to how we're gonna use the wisdom that we've been given. Daniel received this wisdom. He told the king he was promoted. He very much could have used that moment to take advantage of that situation and said, well, at least me and my friends are gonna be taken care of. But you're not gonna see this through the next few weeks. You're gonna see the exact opposite of this. Daniel was never enamored by the power or the prestige or the position that he was given or was available to him. He lived under a different rule, a different way of thinking, of considering, of sort of acting in the world. Um, James says it this way. If you fast forward the New Testament, this is the half-brother of Jesus. And James writes with this. He says, if anyone is, lacks wisdom, let him ask because God gives generously. One of the greatest gifts that I received uh, in my early days as a pastor is that I knew I was young and inadequate and unwise. And so I asked very often. 
God, please give me wisdom. You say you give this generously. Could you please do this? Because I desperately need it. I have lived in a desperation of wisdom because I always felt like I was over my head. I hated it when I was younger. It is one of the greatest gifts that I received because you never really feel like you know what you're supposed to be doing. And so you're always like on the verge, right? You're always, God, if you don't come through, right? If you don't do something. It's just learning how to live right in this way. And I didn't really know it at the time. So it was just naivete. It's a lot of things. And I'm grateful for it, again, at this point in my life. I wasn't um, when I was 34, 35, 37. I wanted to know more and be more and all these things. and just wasn't that way. And James continues on. He says this in chapter three. Who is wise and understanding among you? What does it say? Let them show it by the way they live their life. Not by how cool your tweets are, not by how you weigh in on issues. Let them, if you, who is wise and understanding, just show it, just live it. By the deeds that are done in the humility that comes with wisdom. There is no swagger or condescension in wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, the NIV says it like this, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And we go, why would I boast about selfish envy or, you know, I mean, uh, selfish ambition or bitter envy? Like, why would I boast about it? That's not how it reads. It, it should, it, this is a better, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't talk about having wisdom. That's how it should read. Don't, don't talk about having wisdom as though you do because you deny the truth in that moment. That's how it, that's the better kind of translation. So if you're, if you're saying things, but you're harboring these motives that no one knows about, you're defiling the truth. The thing that God is always doing is the thing that no one else can see. It's the motive, it's that secret place of your heart. And he mentions two things specifically here that I think are really important for our culture to understand that he talks about this idea that if we harbor selfish ambition, there's this sort of endless comparison that we live in and we live under. The water that we swim in, is, it's endless. It's endless. So I want you to consider your own sort of way in the world. When, when you're trying to figure out Right, what's happening, what you need to do, how you're gonna navigate whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever issue you're processing, whatever you're doing, where do you go for your information? Do you look around to see what someone else is experiencing or what someone else is doing and begin to compare where you are in light of where they are? It's an endless comparison. This is, this is what I think is the sense of, of sort of selfish ambition. And then it's not only that, when we compare ourselves, it becomes an endless competition. And we keep score in all kinds of crazy ways. James continues and he says, such wisdom, this is verse 16, or verse 15. Such wisdom, and he uses it, quotes, right? The air quotes. Such wisdom it, it, it's rooted 
in this system. It's just rooted here. So what do we do? <clears throat> if you or I harbor bitter envy, and this is, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but here, here's my two cents. I, I, I try to do gut checks on almost everything that I do. What I've learned in my life, I used to think if I can get 100% motive, then I can like, I, I, I never get 100%. Um, you can get like 95% pure motive and there's the 5% going, you're just in this for yourself. You're just trying, it's just, the, the, the chirp just never stops. Um, sometimes I get to 80%, I have to recognize that, Lord, you know my motives are a little bit, I'm, I'm trying to get here, but I gotta be honest because I still feel this. I just bring that to him and say, Lord, could you give me wisdom? Could you help me to see? Praise be to the Lord of God who holds all wisdom and power. Could you let, and then my job, right, is to let whatever I receive to become a part of my life. And if you harbor these things, it prevents us from living um, in a way. And what you can tell, what you can tell is that this usually comes out in ways where our tendency is to become a critic or a commentator on things rather than rolling up our sleeves and letting it work its way into our lives. Most people think that the reward of wisdom is to be able to build a platform and be able to critique the culture around it. That is not what Daniel did. You know what the reward of Daniel's wisdom was? Responsibility responsibility. When God gave him the wisdom, he expected him to operate in a different way. He expected him to operate under the rule of love. And whereas fear operates with deficiency and there it has to take this idea over here, we operate out of a sense of abundance that somehow God gives to us whatever it is that we need, when we need it, always. And out of that, we are free to give of ourselves. I keep coming back to this because this is what I keep seeing in the scriptures. Everything in there just points to us being able to offer ourselves in ways that, that breathe worth and value rather than trying to take it and build it. This is, this is the difference. Over here, we learn how to live with a sense of, how, how would I say this? Um, I don't know how to say it. Let me think for just a second. With a sense of call. That, that we, we, can, we can rest in the fact, this is what God has asked of me in this moment. And then we can find a sense, and I did write this one down a sense of contentment. And this is always the gut check. Wisdom, right? Wisdom is given to us as a means to understand God's kingdom and the way in which we live in this rule every single day, the rule that is governed by love. And what you and I have to do is we have to resist the lure, to resist the pull, of whatever is happening and whatever direction we've been pulled in, 
in order to be available to offer something better, better. So what do you do? I assume everybody in here has some list of things that bother you, things that you wrestle with, things that you struggle with, positions that you've been put in. What do you do? I would say, Lord, could you give me wisdom? Could you give me wisdom? Recognizing that request requires something from you. To be entrusted with God's wisdom, to be entrusted with his direction implies or requires for you to take responsibility for what it is that he's given. You'll have a choice in how you use it. Leanne, if you can put that last verse there, I think I left it off and we'll close with this, verse 16 of James chapter three. Wherever you have this bag of tricks, there you'll find what? Disorder and everything else. We get to choose what we participate in. We get to choose. Father, I believe that you are assembling, gathering people to build into us a different way of being formed and shaped. You are giving and granting wisdom to us in really meaningful ways. And I ask that we would, you would prepare us also to take responsibility for what it is that you've entrusted to us. Father, we don't wanna be hip or cool or trendy or socially aware. We want to be your church that brings hope, a depth of hope and a depth of healing to the world. We want to learn to navigate the chaos faithfully. Father, so that where we are actually works against the disorder and brings a measure of peace and sanity and hope into all the places where we get the opportunity to be. So I ask you to do that. Would you give us wisdom that is sufficient for the moment that we live in? We lift all these things to the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Amen.